Welcome back, my friends, to AA Recovery Interviews. I'm your host, Howard L., and I'm an alcoholic. Sober since January 1st, 1988, one day at a time. I'm grateful you've joined us. AA Recovery Interviews is the podcast where Alcoholics Anonymous members from around the world share their extraordinary stories of experience, strength, and hope. If you've enjoyed the interviews in this podcast series, will you do a little service work by spreading the word about this rich and meaningful listening experience? This show is another helping hand of AA that we can all extend to alcoholics everywhere. My guest on today's podcast, Sachin B., first came to the U.S. from India when he was 21, eager to build a lifestyle fueled by alcohol and partying. Actually, it was just a continuation of the life he had lived in India, where the shame, guilt, and low self-esteem that permeated his life in a dysfunctional family only made Sachin want to drink more. After years in the U.S., Sachin's daily drinking, coupled with his desire to dominate business and professional relationships, had ironically become the blueprint for his inevitable demise. For the next 15 years, Sachin's functional alcoholism aided his relative success in his business and personal lives. Surrounding himself with a group of people who drank and partied like he, Sachin still felt something had been lost in the fog of his disease. A brief break in the fog gave him a glimpse of what had been missing— spirituality. Serendipitously, that realization coincided with his entree into Alcoholics Anonymous in 2020. Sachin's subsequent quest for a spiritual awakening became the driving force in his program since the beginning. Today, he gratefully acknowledges that he found what he had been looking for by active work and sincere participation in all aspects of AA. By living the program and practicing the principles in his affairs, Sachin enjoys a rich life that he shares with his family and his fellows in AA, freely admitting that he could not have achieved what he has without Alcoholics Anonymous. So please, enjoy the next hour and 15 minutes of AA Recovery Interviews with my friend and AA brother, Sachin B. My name is Sachin. I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Sachin. That's what I say when I'm sitting in a room and somebody introduces themselves. So I really appreciate you doing this today. You and I were just in a really fine meeting, a men's meeting, that a number of my interviews over the last three years have come out of. There's lots of good sobriety there, lots of good solutions, and I'm so glad to see you're becoming as regular a member as you have become. And uh, it means a lot to me that you would sit down with me today and do this. Thank you. Though, thank you for giving me this opportunity. I'm very glad to be a uh, part of this podcast. And thank you for the great service that you're doing by doing this podcast. Thank you. It's, it's, all, it's all been very edifying and satisfying for me to do over the time I've been doing it. And it's because of people like you who I can talk to and get to know a little bit more about them. You and I have spent some time in another meeting that we go to here in Houston, but First of all, your accent doesn't sound like a Houston Texan accent. What's up with that? <laughs> because I'm from Dallas. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm uh, originally from India. I mm-hmm. was born 1979 in a small town uh, close to Mumbai. I spent the uh, first 21 years of my life in India, and that's mm-hmm. where the accent comes from. Oh, cool, cool. Mumbai, that used to be Bombay. Yeah. When did it switch from Bombay to Mumbai? Uh, 1947, when British left India. Uh, so British, they couldn't pronounce Mumbai. So oh. for them, it was easy to say Bombay because of their um, limited um, accent. So when they left, people of India decided to rename it back to Mumbai. 
and it's named after the goddess called Mumba Devi or something in uh, in uh, Mumbai. So it's named after that. Mm-hmm. British people changed it to Bombay. Bombay. When they left, it was changed back to Mumbai. See, where I grew up with world maps and everything else, it was always B-O-M-B-A-Y, mm-hmm. Bombay. Yeah, I think airport code, if you're flying to India, airport you know, Houston has H-O-U as right, an uh-huh. airport code. So if you're still flying to Mumbai, the airport code is still B-O-M, bomb. So it's still, you know, it <laughs> doesn't sound good. but <laughs> a, a throwback, a yeah. throwback to the past. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that's marvelous. I've had a few, a, a few folks from your part of the world who, where you originally came from on the show, and it's always fascinating to me to meet other people in AA from different parts of the world, and I've had the opportunity to do that not only with the podcast, but in going to the international conventions. Mm-hmm. The last one was supposed to be in 2020. They're every five years, but because of COVID, it was canceled, completely canceled. The conventions that I've been to previously were so amazing. And to be able to see 60 to 70,000 AAs walking around a city and in the stadium holding hands and saying the Lord's Prayer is just, just sublime. So the last one I went to is 2015, and the next one I'm going to is 2025. But one of the things I love the most about going to the conventions was meeting people from other parts of the world and hear how AA works there. And mm-hmm. something I was interested in, in knowing about you was when you were growing up, what did you know about alcohol and alcoholism? That's a good question. When I was growing up, my father used to drink every day. Mm. And I later realized he's alcoholic. Mm. But what I knew when I was a kid about alcohol is whenever I saw my father drinking, mm-hmm. in in Indian culture, it's not really accepted socially to drink. So he used to hide his drinking all the time. Mm. Uh, my mother, I later realized, was is enabler. So she was helping my father hide his alcohol and all that. I remember asking my father, hey, what is this? What are you drinking? And he's like, oh, this is medicine for grown-ups. And this is when you're a real little kid. Yeah, yeah. I was probably like six, seven years old. Mm. And I saw him drinking and then suddenly getting super happy after some time. So I, and he told me it's a medicine for uh, grown-ups. But at the same time, from his uh, discussion, it sounded like I'm not supposed to have it. So I stayed away from it. Yeah. But I saw the effect is good. Yeah. When he takes it, he's super happy. He's almost a different person. So calling it medicine, you're not too far off the mark, are you? <laughs> <laughs> I go, yeah. yeah. Right. <laughs> and it, what's ironic about it is that a lot of medicines do have alcohol in them. Like mm-hmm. If you've got a cold and you want to sleep, you take some NyQuil. The reason it puts you out is because of the alcohol in it. But uh, that kind of medicine, we're talking about straight out of a liquor bottle is what mm-hmm. your dad was calling medicine. Yeah. Wow. So you said your dad would drink every day and he would get happy. Um, what were some of the other uh, effects of his drinking in your, in your family of origin? So when I was a kid, my, uh, we, we, we started as really uh, like a lower middle class or poor family. My father was a truck driver. Mm-hmm. And uh, we, I remember we used to live in very small, like maybe 10 by 10 room, family of four or five, I'm sorry. Uh, all in one room? Yeah, all in one room. Wow. 
So we shared that mm-hmm. and we had common bathroom outside where mm-hmm. rest of the family would go and all that. So me, my brother, sister, father, mother, we all stayed together. So very humble beginning. My father, as I mentioned, was a truck driver. He used to drive someone else's truck and he worked really hard. Mm-hmm. Um, but as a part of job, that's what he told me. Like as a part of job, it's very stressful. He used to drive like days uh, without coming back home. Mm. So that's where he picked up his drinking and uh, he used to chew tobacco all the time. Um, he never smoked, but he was heavy drinker. As I was growing up, I, he told me stories about him getting in a big rake. Mm-hmm. He didn't tell me it was because he was drunk or anything, but he said it was a late night, I was super tired. My guess is he was probably drinking. Mm. And um, he got into big rake and he was hospitalized for a few days. Um, he got into an accident? Or mm-hmm, yeah. What, what kind of accident was it? So he used to drive uh, this uh, 18-wheeler equivalent trucks yeah. back in India, but they were not really 18-wheeler. Back in India, there's two, two, four, six-wheelers. Yeah. And I guess he hit a tree. And he and his assistant, they both were hospitalized for, for a week. And his, uh, he got like stitches on his face and all that. So fast forward, um, he used to take me to these dinner parties. Mm-hmm. Of course, he made money over the period. And now he's, when I was probably 10, 12 years old, he's a very successful businessman. He has his own trucks. He has his business of construction material. Mm. I remember him being very angry, alpha male type of person. Mm-hmm. He was the only um, income earner in the family. So I have seen him getting into fights with my mother mm-hmm. uh, every now and then. I have seen him hit her yeah. many times. That's it's tough. A, That's tough for a little kid to see. Yeah. it's a, And it's part of culture. I saw so many husbands in India, they were like fighting with their wife and they almost treated their wives there as if they owned her. Mm. Um, so it's part of the culture. I didn't know it was wrong back then. So I saw that. I remember she used to hide like hundreds of bottles of whiskey from the rest of the family that my father has drank. Mm. And she would hide them. And then once in a month, she will take them out when nobody's looking in a big garbage bag. So my initial thoughts were, man, this is not good because even though my dad says it's a medicine, he gets angry and he f- fights with my mother. He used to hit her uh, yes. and hit us. Uh, hit you. Yeah, yeah, many times. But again, I mean, it was, I didn't really think it was completely out of the line. Well, when you see everybody else around you acting the same way, it's just like being an alcoholic. If you're in the bar and you're an alcoholic, you're not going to notice that other people are drinking just like you are. It just seems that's the new normal. Yeah. Especially when you're a kid. I, I personally suffered at the hands of my father, who was a rage. He, he never drank, but he had other issues, and he was definitely a rageaholic. So we got hit a lot and physical abuse and yelled at and, and embarrassed and uh, humiliated and, and other things like that. And it's never easy when you're a little kid to see that. Did you, when you were a kid, watching that going on, did you ever have a sense as to why he was doing it? Did you blame what he was doing with the alcohol? Or No, I, I couldn't. I didn't have that, um, I guess, knowledge back then, but I was just thought he's 
just an angry guy, stressed out, and he does that. Because he had five, he still has five brothers. I guess only one, one of the brothers drank and he died mm. uh, when he was like 40, 42 because of alcoholism. Mm -hmm. Rest of the brothers were clean, never had any drink. Mm. They were super happy. They were super nice. They never hit their wives mm. or yelled at their kids. So I thought my father is just like that. He's, ah. That's his nature. And I felt bad about it, you know, and some days he will also cry and be uh, really vulnerable and all that. Typical alcoholic traits. Yeah. So some of the consequences he suffered, the, the auto accident that he had with the truck. My dad was pretty nasty to my mother, but she never, ever, ever gave the impression that she was going to do anything about it, like leave him. What, what was your mother's response over the years? Exact same. I mean, she never, ever gave the impression she will leave my father. I mean, it's not an, not even an option in India. Maybe it's changing now. I'm sure it's changed now. Back then, once you're married, pretty much you are done. You are with that person rest of the life, both husbands and wives. Mm -hmm. So she was always taking his side yeah. because she knew she has nowhere else to go. That caused a lot of resentment. Uh, when I was doing my inventory, that was my first resentment. Like my imagine. mother uh, supports my father, even though he just bad, nasty guy. So she was the classic enabler, is what you're saying. Yes, yeah. yes. Yeah. Trying to reframe the bad behavior as acceptable if he, you know, if he's sorry for what he did or if he says he loves her every now and then that forgives all the negative, beha bad behavior along the way. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like, sounds like our mothers were <laughs> somewhat the same, too. Yeah. My parents stayed married for... When my dad died, they were married for almost 60 years, which is amazing. And when I was a little kid, I used to wish that my mother and father weren't married and that, you know, because my dad was so violent that, you know, I spent most of my childhood going like this, you know, blocking the blows. But uh, now you have a brother, you said, yeah. younger? or Younger brother. He's in India. I have a younger sister also. She's also in India. Okay. Okay. So how far apart in age were you guys? We are two years apart. Two years apart. So when kids are experiencing the same sort of behavior in their house, when it's this functional family going on, Oftentimes, the kids will kind of uh, get together as, you know, as victims or whatever and try and figure out what's going on. To what extent did you and your brother and sister try and process what was going on in your house? I mean, we were doing that every day. We still do that. We uh, team up and try to understand what's going on. And mm. uh, most of the time, because he's still a very dominating person in our mm. family, most of the time he's afraid, I'm afraid. So when we just get together and support each other, uh, we both ended up becoming alcoholic. So my, I'm three years sober now, thank God. What's your, what's your sobriety date? It's 24 July 2020. Cool. But my brother is alcoholic. He's still uh, active and he's, yeah, and he's almost has become like my father. What does he think about you getting sober? He has not really commented on it, but he says that's that's good. But he says, I can do that too. I was sober for six months. So yeah, when, when there is a time, I'll do it. So he does. he's not really like, wow, how can you do that? I cannot stay sober for one day. 
but he's like it's easy to do mm. if i decide to do it i'll do it which typical alcoholic you know i get that and and as a matter of fact when you were talking about your father building the company and you know becoming much more successful while still drinking and showing alcoholic tendencies that's what i call a functional alcoholic and that's one of the things that makes it so difficult for the functional alcoholic to stop because there's nothing in what's going on to confirm that anything is due to drinking because they're still performing on the job they're still making money they're still bringing home the paycheck they're miserable to their family they're they're openly drunk in places but as long as it's not affecting their job and it's not too abject then they will you know be let off the hook and at the same time convince themselves i can't possibly be an alcoholic because an alcoholic could not build a business like i've built or could not be the type of person i am and that's what makes it so difficult for successful people who are alcoholics sometimes to get sober have you seen that yeah and my story is exactly same is it really exactly same just like my father when you were a kid how did his drinking influence you with regard to what to expect as you got older or did you say i'll never i'll never drink like that or what was his impact on you so when i just started understanding what is alcohol and all that i was 13 14 and i didn't really think too much about it my father was never there he was always outside and my thoughts were yeah my father drinks mm-hmm. it's not really a good thing but i never had any resolve that i'm not going to drink or i will drink i was just neutral hmm. i didn't think about it until i drank i started when i was 15 what were the circumstances under which you started so back in india you write your high school exam 10th grade 10th grade is very important after that you decide you're going to be what you want to do in your life sure so in india there are only three careers they joke about it you can either become engineer doctor or homeless <laughs> <laughs> so what do you want to pick so I like, oh okay I, i cannot be homeless yeah. so you only two options you either become engineer or doctor yeah to make your parents proud fortunately i was top of the class all the time i was either first or second in my class hmm. very sincere student i always or like first bencher i will do everything right homework same day all a's first or second in the class i wrote my 10th grade exam which is our final high school exam mm-hmm. it's equivalent to your sat here right i mean it after that i mean your career is going to be decided i knew in my mind i didn't do my 100% because i was coming top of the class my parents my friends and everybody was hoping or expecting me to like have really nice grades and all that i was really anxious curious mm-hmm. and before the results one month before one of my friend in the same neighborhood couple of years younger than me uh, told me hey i have this can of beer do you want to drink i said what beer like yeah yeah this is beer is for cool people it's not alcohol or anything it's just beer i said okay and what did you know about beer only thing i i, I have seen it in movies my father always drink whiskey so i knew alcohol bottle looks like a bottle of whiskey yeah i didn't know i i've seen beer in uh, movies and i thought it's only like probably not strong alcohol it's so they don't advertise it all the time on tv no no not in india again it's not really 
anti-religious or anything, but it's not socially acceptable hmm. uh, to drink in India. Back then, now it's all over. I mean, back then it was like you had to hide it. I was going to ask you about that, about the, the social stigma of drinking and what a person has to do to be able to drink amidst that social stigma. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was a big social stigma. I mean, if you are drinking, you're a bad person. That was a simple thing. It was not um, accepted to sit at home and drink in front of your kids. So you just have to go out, drink, hide, and come back. I get it. And that's what I did. I went with this guy. We had one can of beer, mm-hmm. probably 16 ounces. We had half and half, and then he bought a pack of cigarettes. We, I mean, back pack of cigarettes was like 10 cigarettes back in India. Yeah. So we smoked the whole pack, and then he had some chewing tobacco. <laughs> so we had the full menu. <laughs> and we got it done in 30 minutes, and I felt good. I felt relaxed. Huh. With the half can of beer, my anxiety about my 10th grade results was disappeared for a few minutes. For 30 minutes, probably, I felt so relaxed. I like screw the 10th grade exam. I feel right in the moment. It was fun. I went home and next day I called him. I mean, I mean, there was no calling. We just walked to his place because back then there were no phone calls and all that. So I walked to his place and I was like, hmm, that was good yesterday. What do you think? You want to do it again? He's like, yeah, but I don't have money. I said, okay, maybe I can steal from my father's closet. Uh-huh. And it used to cost 50 rupees, which is $1. Uh-huh. So, and that continued. Every day I used to steal a couple of dollars. We'll go, same place, buy same can of beer. And I pretty much started drinking daily. If not daily, probably every other day, but it was one can, sometimes a couple of cans. Then we tried different vodka, then local made alcohol we moved on to uh, bigger better drinks so i was stealing money every day so that sense of relief that you had with one can of beer of course that's you got the alcohol but i would think the nicotine and the cigarettes and the chewing tobacco would have also given you quite a buzz yeah and i i love that so you can chew tobacco in India, I mean, it's not really, I mean, I cannot do that in front of my parents because I was only 15. Still, you're not holding glass and you're not, so I can chew tobacco all day. And then smoking cigarette, I felt it made made me look cool. And then I really felt I was very shy, introvert, very sincere student who will go to school, do the do the work and... I would like to say I had no bad qualities. Yeah. So I had some friends who would chew tobacco, drink and all that. But I never, they made fun of me. Like, oh, you are so nerdy. I mean, you are not doing any of this. And I, I, in my mind, I wanted to be like them. But I didn't have opportunity or I was afraid. But after this in- incident, I had all the opportunity to be cool like them, drink and smoke and chew tobacco. So you found yourself a group of, of friends yeah. through the drinking and, mm-hmm. the, and the tobacco. Yeah. So that starts at, you said, about 15. Yeah. So what did the next several years look like? So for two more years I spent um, doing same thing, stealing money and drinking, chewing tobacco and all that. Mm-hmm. Uh, till I was 17, I stayed at home. Were there ever any consequences from that? Not really. I mean, only consequences were uh, 11th, 12th grade when I was drinking, smoking and all that. Again, I was functional. I was very functional. I was afraid. I was staying home. Mm. So I was hiding it very well. But my grades went down. Mm -hmm. My grades were now in 80s. Still not too bad. Uh 
but I ended up getting 87% uh, at 12th uh, grade exam, which was low for me for my 83, 83, yeah. But it was low for my, um, I would say, caliber. Sure. I was hoping to get 95, but I was distracted with alcohol. And then, uh, obviously, at that age, I was attracted to girls. And um, That's enough to drop your score a few points. Yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> but at the 12th grade, to my, I don't know if I was lucky or not, but I got admission to Pune, which is four hours away from uh, my hometown. And my parents said, uh, they initially thought it's not a good idea to send me outside of the house, but I was really hoping to get out of the house so that I can just go crazy and party. Yeah. So, and luckily I got that. So I, I left my house at 17 and spent next four years in Pune doing my engineering. <clears throat> I, I went to civil engineering. Is it, how do you pronounce that, Pune? Pune. Pune. Four hours from your parents, four hours from needing to adhere to their rules. Yeah. yeah. I get it. And then my father was, at that time, he was very successful. He had successful business and uh, uh, we were comfortable. So he used to, and he was very happy with me because I, st even though I got less grades according to my own um, calculations, but he was happy with my grades because my brother was not doing good. Mm. My brother was failing. And uh, he got all the wrath of my father. And I used to be, I always got like extra support. How did that make you feel in, in your relationship with your brother? I mean, I didn't really care at that point. I was yeah. very happy with the attention and money I was getting, but now I realize it. Now, after getting sober, I feel like my success and the attention I got from my father had a big impact on my brother. So the, it distracted your dad from you long enough for you to be able to go to university. Yeah. Hmm. So I got in Pune and I then just I went crazy. I mean, once you get in engineering school, who cares about 90% or 80% or 60? As long as you make it, you get the passing grade, you're good. So and passing grade was 35. And I just made sure I get 36. <laughs> and I was, you know, gifted in that sense that I didn't have to study much and I was getting easily 35, so I never went to school. I didn't really care about studying. Um, I still passed and I was drinking. I made a few friends who were drinking and in the next four years I experimented everything, um, like marijuana or drinking daytime, uh, drinking all day, all night, mm -hmm. definitely drinking daily basis. Um, I failed one of the classes and it bothered me. I was like, man, I never failed. And now I, I can tell I was distracted because of all the vices and uh, chasing girls. But then I got into habit of failing. I was like, hmm, I mean, even if I fail, I'm not wasting my year. You can take the course again and go to next year. How did you explain that to the folks? I lied. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't know. <laughs> I'm like, uh, they're like, hey, did you pass? Yeah, sure, I passed. <laughs> And one day, it's funny that I never showed up to the classes. And one day I showed up and my professor said, oh, who are you? I said, oh, I'm, I'm Sachin. He's like, oh, you are the guy? I'm like, yeah. I said, but you, I see you are present all the time, but I've never seen you. So what's going on? So I was paying someone else to write off my attendance. <laughs> and um, so the professor caught me. He's like, oh, you're a fraud. And I've never seen you. 
So you're probably doing something. I want to see your parent. Uh, so can your father or mother come here? I'm like, no, I'm, my parents are really poor. They don't have money to come here. And like, no, I, I, I don't see that by looking at your clothes and the way you are acting. You look like a spoiled brat. Like, no, but I'm re- we are really poor. My parents cannot come. So it's who can come from your family? Because I have to talk with someone who is mature. You mm-hmm. look like an idiot. Yeah. Like, okay, I can bring my friend. I mean, I can bring my older brother. So I didn't have older brother. So <laughs> I went to the dorms and this guy I used to drink with all the time. Uh-huh. This guy was really poor. So yeah. I told him, I'll buy you a lot of liquor and tobacco if you come and pose as my uh, older brother and um, just say that because of our family circumstances, he couldn't attend the school. Just lie. He's like, yeah, sure. And this guy was so poor, he didn't have nice shirt. So I gave him my shirt. <laughs> the shirt off your back. <laughs> I, gave, I gave him my shirt. and then, um, uh, But he was really good in talking. Ah. So he went there and explained my professor. No, he just, you know, because of family circumstances, he couldn't attend the school. And please forgive him. He yelled at me in, in front of professor. So he was a really good actor. And then... Um, then we we got out of it. We went straight to the bar. We got drunk. We celebrated that. So really, I lied all the time. All those four years, I used to tell my father, hey, I'm doing great. Never told him I failed any of the courses. But again, I mean, what I learned in the program, I mean, I was blessed yeah. by my higher power. I mm-hmm. got I got a lot of success, which I never deserved. Um, so I, now I can see it was blessing. And probably in in Indian culture, they say uh, it's all karma, right? So you do right things, you get right uh, results. But till then, I have not done much right in my life. So karma was still waiting for you to settle the score? It's probably from my previous life or because of my parents. That's what they say in my culture. So I, was, I used to joke all the time, I have not done anything good in this life. So whatever I'm getting right now is because of my previous life's karma, not... Not this life. Yeah, so you were a smart guy. You could get through whatever you needed to get through until it started showing up in lower scores. But even then, you had a way out through the lying. Yeah, so I mean, I learned how to how to pay off uh, the. So in India, you have <clears throat> a lot of corruption. Yeah. Um, I mean, I don't want to say bad about the whole country, but right, I had sure. figured out how to. Um, I found a loophole. I can pay a little bit extra under the table and um, get the passing grade. Huh. So I figured that out. And uh, in last year, I I used to just pay off under the table and uh, hmm. uh, get passing grade. I would lie to my father, like, hey, I have to take extra tuition. Can you send me this kind of money? And for my father, it was not a big deal. It was like I would ask for 5,000 rupees, which is $60, $70 for a month. Yeah. So for $70, $80 per month, I will be able to have my drinks, all my vices, party, everything. So it was really cheap back then. So I was doing that. I f- finally graduated in 2000. And uh, one of my roommates, so we used to drink all the time. We experiment marijuana. There is something called poppy seeds. So poppy seeds is like, family of yeah, opium in India you mix that in drink or milk 
and then you drink it and you are good for like six, eight hours. You are completely gone. So we experimented that and uh, we got hospitalized because of overdose or food poisoning. I don't know what it was. Mm -hmm. It was really nice. We had a, like six, eight hours of buzz. But after that, people starting just uh, passing out. How large a group are we talking about? We're talking 16, 18 people. And I, I, I was the leader of that group. And they all got sick? Yeah, they all got sick. And there were cops involved. And we were hospitalized. Um, one guy was going to the med school and he realized he couldn't breathe. He's about to pass. So something wrong is going on. Right. This is not only high. So he said, let's go to hospital, otherwise we're going to die. We went to hospital and doctor said, yeah, there is something. You guys screwed up. It's overdose or something. And we need to hospitalize all of you. We need to inject a pipe through your nose. It will go through your throat in your stomach and we have to pump out everything. Oh. That was scary. I remember they were inserting tube my nose in my throat and the nurse told me, try not to <clears throat> cough because the glass tube might break in your throat. And I was <laughs> like, shit. I started coughing right away. <laughs> oh, no. But I was so scared. I was like, man, I don't want this glass tube to burst in my throat mm -hmm. and I don't want to die. After a few minutes, I was passed out. And luckily, that glass tube didn't burst into my throat. And I woke up probably after one and a half day. Mm. I didn't have shoes. Uh, I had pants and I didn't have shirt. So I was topless in this hospital, 19-year-old. I opened my eyes and I had my then-girlfriend yeah. on the left side. And on my right side, my father and mother crying. Oh, no. I was like, shit, my hometown is four hours away. How the heck these guys came here? And who told them? So I was pissed off who told them. Yeah. But they were crying. And my father told me, it only took me two and a half hours to drive here because I was so worried that you're going to die. I'm like, shit. I mean, I didn't do anything that bad. Mm. Like, yeah, no, you have been passed out for one and a half days. And I, we didn't know if you're going to live or die. You're in ICU. I'm like, these guys are stupid. I don't know why they brought us in ICU. I was still not serious. You were denying it all. Yeah, I was denying it. It was just a small party. And so my father was really embarrassed. I got kicked out of the uh, dorms which was, my father was trusty of that dom. So he was like one of the biggest donor. It was embarrassing for him. And uh, so we got kicked out, mm -hmm. all 16, 18 of them. Most of them were brought back to their uh, hometown. Mm -hmm. And my father told me, okay, you know what? I'll give you a second chance. And um, why don't you stay out of dom somewhere for six months? And after six months, I'll request them to take you back in. Mm. And uh, that's what happened. We stayed out for six months. We continued our stupid things and we went back. So that's one incident I remember that was really bad. I mean, so, and also directly attributable to what you were doing. Mm -hmm. And your, your parents show up, you have to fess up. But even then, you probably weren't giving them the whole story. No, no, I told them it's not me, it's uh, other guys who forced me to drink. And I had only one small glass and my body couldn't take it. So my father's like, yeah, yeah, because you're not alcoholic. You don't know. Sounds like you were morally skewed at that point. Yeah. The morals of telling the truth had gone completely out the window. No, yeah, yeah. Did you find that was happening when you weren't drinking and using as well? Before I started drinking and using? 
well, I guess if you were drinking and using all the time, then there probably wasn't a period of time when you weren't doing that, that you were lying. Yeah, yeah no. I mean, lying was just regular. Yeah, yeah. Way of life, yeah. Yeah, way of life. You had that as a consequence. You get kicked out, and then because of your father's influence, you're let back in, and you finish your your education at university? Yeah, I finished my education and my roommate was preparing to come to United States uh -huh. and uh, he was writing uh, entrance exam, which is like a city, they call it GRE. Uh -huh. He used to tell me, hey, can you ask me some questions so yeah. that I can, so when I was asking questions, I realized this exam was really easy. So I thought, you know what, I'll give this exam so I can come to US and party even bigger. <laughs> I mean, the only reason I want to come to U.S. is I, I mean, I'm away from India. And I wrote the exam and I got admitted. I got admitted here, uh, Lamar University in Beaumont, Texas. I got here and my parents were so happy. They're like, oh, we are proud of you. You finished your engineering. You are going to the U.S. You are doing, I mean, they were on cloud nine. But your whole idea of coming here was to just improve your partying and, yes. and your use of alcohol and, and anything else. Yeah. What was your perception of the U.S. And, and how people your age were acting and living their lives versus in India? Man, my only perception I had about U.S. is I knew Statue of Liberty, Manhattan, and Las Vegas. <laughs> That's all I knew. That's and the only thing I knew, okay, people just have fun there. Uh, it's alcohol all over, party, pretty girls, and it, it's going to be nice. So you ended up in Texas. In Texas, in Beaumont. In Beaumont, yeah, that's quite a shock when you're expecting things to look like Las Vegas. It's funny, when I landed on Beaumont Airport, they had all the lights turned off because usually one flight will come there in a day and people were sleeping. I was like, where the heck? Is this like middle stop and then we are going to U.S.? No, this is your final stop. You get out here. I'm like, oh, shit, I'm getting out here. I was in depression for three days. I was like, man, I was ha having good life. I knew people. I can go under the table. And here, I don't know anyone. Yeah. And this life sucks. I have to do my own laundry. I have to cook for myself. I have to do everything. We'll be right back. My friends, if you're enjoying AA Recovery interviews, I invite you to check out my latest audiobook, Alcoholics Anonymous, the story of how more than 100 men have recovered from alcoholism. This is the word-for-word, cover-to-cover reading of the first edition of the big book, published in 1939. It's a relaxing yet meaningful and engaging way to listen to the big book anytime, anyplace. Have a free listen at Audible, iTunes, or Amazon. While you're there, search for my other audiobook, Lost Stories of the Big Book. Thirty original stories from the first and or second editions missing from the third and fourth editions of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's also available from Amazon as a Kindle book or in paperback if you'd like to read along. You're going to love it. And we're back. Now, the friend that you had that you were asking the questions of, when he came to the U.S., did he go somewhere else? Yeah, he went to Detroit. Okay, so you guys couldn't even... No. Pair up. No. Yeah. But in three days, I figured out how to buy my own beer. I figured out who is drinking, mm. who is not drinking. After three days, it was best time of my life. I started drinking all day. It was cheap. And then uh, one of my friends got me into uh, a job. Uh -huh. And I was making 6 $7 per hour. And um, I can pay for my alcohol. 
I mean, I can buy my own cigarettes and chewing tobacco. So I just, I never complained in my life after mm. that. I was drinking every day, having fun. Um, I put on probably 30 to 40 pounds in one year. Wow, with all that beer. Yeah, all beer. I loved it. Uh-huh. I was drinking all day. Uh, again, I was not going to classes. But you were still doing okay academically? Yeah, I was still doing okay. Huh. I don't know. I, was, I mean, I was cheating. I was cheating. I was, uh, I caught cheater, cheating one time. It was an Asian guy, and then I tried to play my Indian trick on him. No, I'm poor, I'm this, that. He's like, no, it doesn't work here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you have to own your mistakes. You are right. getting F. I'm like, no, please, this, that. And he's like, oh, you are getting F. There is no, um, you cannot run away from this. I went outside of his office and I, screw him. Who cares if I get F? My parents wouldn't know. And I was still taking money from my parents. I was still, my father was still sending money. I continued. I somehow made it. I got, I graduated. Like you said, I was functional alcoholic, like my father. I used to drink every day to the blackout, wake up every morning, go to the work, barely do minimum, Mm. and then come back, start drinking, and on the weekends, just go crazy. You mentioned earlier that that was a, a lifestyle that really was great for you when you first got here. Did that great time, did the great time start to decline over a period of time? Yeah, I mean, I started seeing Hint. 2001, I came here till, till I quit. 2019, one year before I quit, it started declining. But I had a good run for 19 years. So you, you were in the same position for the same company? No, I was changing. You were changing, okay. On paper, academically, you were an engineer because of your innate talents and skills and, and uh, brilliance, let's say. You were able to get a job and keep a job for a long time, even though you cheated your way through school. And you continued to drink through those 19 years? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, for 10 years, I worked for corporate. Mm-hmm. And I used my same formula. I uh-huh. used to do... Um, bare minimum, cheat my way up. I was really good bullshitter, so I, I, I knew what my boss wants to hear. So I was stealing all the way. I mean, in, I used to work for a big oil and gas company, and you get uh, paid for extra hours that you work. So I always put 50 hours on my timesheet. Mm-hmm. And I, in fact, I would work only 25 hours. Mm-hmm. Never felt bad. It's like, screw them, it's a big oil and gas company, I'm going to steal from them. So I continued to do that for for a while. 2012, my boss caught me. Mm. It was big government contract. And you are not supposed to do that. You can go to jail if you do that. Yeah. He caught me, he got pissed off. And I was doing that for two years without him knowing. He's like, oh, you're charging 25% more for two years. And then I got really shocked. I was like, Damn, I'm on visa. If I lose my job, I had two houses, one in Florida, one in uh, Houston. Both were on 80% mortgage. I have two kids, one newborn. If I lose my job, I had one month to wrap up everything and go back to India. And you were married at this point? I was married, yeah, 2012. I got married in 2004. I'm telling you this story from 2012. I was afraid. And that uncertainty stayed with me for three weeks. At the end of three weeks, I got fired from the job. Mm-hmm. I was so stressed out, went outside, got me a bottle of scotch, 
pack of cigarettes, chewing tobacco, which mm-hmm. was my full menu. Went home. I told my wife, this is what happened. Don't bother me. I'm going to go in a room, drink the whole bottle and look for a job. I drank the whole bottle by like between 10 o'clock till 2, 3, 2 o'clock in four hours. I drank the whole bottle, mm. smoked the whole pack of cigarettes. I applied probably random 150 jobs. I was panicked and I was just blaming this big oil and gas company, blaming everyone why they are doing this to me, never realizing I had anything to do with it. What were you thinking of your karma at this time? Hmm, good question. No, it didn't come to my mind that... <laughs> no, I, I was just wondering, do karmas change according it's, to circumstance or do they stay the same? It changed. Hmm. That was my changing part. Yeah, my feeling of party, everything is fun, I can cheat my way through, I, I mean, everything is with me, had changed at that point. That house of cards starts to collapse in 2012. Yeah, I was crying. I was uh, very helpless. At that point, I had become just like my father. Mm. I was abusive husband, father. Exactly what I described you about my father, mm. I had become that. Yeah. I was blaming everybody except myself. So, Were you being enabled by your wife as well? Yeah. So you married a woman that was pretty much like the kind of woman your father married. She was not like that when I married her, but she became like that. Yeah, I can imagine. And that kind of behavior... If you're getting away with it, again, it's it's one of those opportunities to stop that never that doesn't come at least at that point, and it just delays the inevitable. Mm-hmm. So for a month, I was looking for a job, and uh, I found a job in another oil and gas company. So I survived. I got um, a break with small consulting company. Also, I got opportunity to start my own business in 2012. Mm. And I thought everything is perfect now. I can, um, you know, my life will come on track after that. And so I started my business and I was working for an oil and gas company for the next three years. I got, again, with the blessings of God, I worked like 60, 80 hours and I was really pissed off. My ego was hurt. How can you lay me off? How can you fire me? So you were chewing on this one resentment for the next three years. Yeah, for forever, actually. And then that was the best thing that could happen to me. I called my uh, one of my colleagues and I told him how they can do that. They suck, this, that. I still remember what he told me. He's like, Sachin, just consider this as a wake-up call. Your life is not over. But I felt... God is talking to me through him. He's like, just consider this as a wake-up call. Now it's time to wake up. I'm like, what do you mean? I'm not done anything wrong. He's like, I'm just telling you, just wake up. You will be fine. I'm like, oh, shit, he knows everything. He probably figured out what I was doing and all that. So next three years, I was, yeah, like you said, I was resentful. So you blew, you blew off that, what, what he said to you at that time, just blew it completely off. Yeah, yeah. He's like, I thought he... I mean, what did you tell yourself about that? I, th- I thought he's just, he's stupid. He doesn't know what he's talking about. I don't really have... Yeah, so that sign from above <laughs> came and went, so to speak, at that point. When you were being told by this friend about, you know, now's the time, this is your <laughs> wake-up call, you blew it off. I don't think it came till I became sober. It came, it came again, but not, 
you had the opportunity earlier on than your actual sobriety day. Yeah. I, I didn't really, I didn't want to accept that it was my problem. So for three years, I worked really hard. I was drinking a lot during those three years. I was, I started smoking this, uh, I started smoking marijuana because that combination gave me a quick blackout. So I didn't want to drink like 10 drinks and then get blacked out. I just had like three, four large drinks and then smoke a lot of marijuana and I'll sleep. And my excuse was I'm running my business, I have job, I'm stressed out. But really looking back, I was just trying to get back at world. I was like, I want to prove the point that I'm not a loser. I want to do this. But in that process, I started drinking heavily. 2015, um, I uh, quit my main job, mm-hmm. oil and gas, and I just continued to run my business because it was I was really successful by then. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a few employees. Now I don't have a job. I'm not afraid of anybody drug yeah. testing me. It's your company. I don't. It's my company. I don't have to go to office at eight o'clock. Mm-hmm. So 16, 17 onwards, I started drinking. Daytime. If it's lunch, I will drink martini or beer. After 4 o'clock, my marijuana and whiskey combination will kick in. This is not the kind of thing that, that a person can do without being noticed by the world around him. What was the world around you informing you about what they were seeing with that kind of behavior? Were you getting any feedback at all? So, no, because I surrounded myself with everybody who was like uh. me. We had a core group of like 10 to 12 people. Uh We used to drink all the time, smoke together, go to places we are not supposed to go, like strip club. And uh, just whole, everyone I surrounded myself with were doing that. So like you said, alcoholic feels like everyone is doing it. So what's wrong with that? And then I was more successful than rest of the people because they were still working. They were still had someone to answer to. I didn't have that. So I used to just make them jealous. Look, Monday morning, cheers. I'm drinking scotch. You idiots are going to the job. So good luck. And I was not getting any feedback, bad feedback. They were like, oh, you are so lucky. You get to do this. I never thought I was doing anything wrong. Were you ever held to account by any of your clients? uh, Or were you doing such a good job that they overlooked anything that might have pointed you to problems you were having? I don't recall any any problems with any of the clients because we were doing a good job. We were, um, and I was blessed to have really good team. So you were doing so well you didn't need to get sober. Yeah, just like you said, what you said about my father. I was, uh, my father was successful. He was getting money. So really all the outside signs are looking so good. I mean, you don't have, you're a functional alcoholic. You don't see any problems or unmanageability of life that we talk about. So at this point, you're still hanging out with this group of people. Mm -hmm. Uh, You're not seeing any reflection in them back to you that you're doing anything wrong with your life. Your business is going well. Uh, You're still married. Mm -hmm. Still married. I got caught doing wrong things by my wife. I completely denied it. I like overpowered the discussion. I fought with her and I pretty much told her she got wrong information. And that happened more than two times. Did she ever threaten to kick you out or leave you? No, 
maybe that's a cultural thing yeah but after i got sober she told me she thought about it 1000 times yeah so i was pretty close this kind of behavior brings us up to the point of you getting sober was it for the first time and last time or did you try to get sober what what were the circumstances under which you finally stopped drinking so in 2019 i was turning 40 august 2019 was my 40th birthday i had a group of this 15 people who were like party people and uh, we decided to go to panama country because you can do a lot of things there legally and then i always thought you know i am the biggest party person i have to throw this big party all these 12 people we went to panama we got kicked out of all inclusive resort because we drank too much like and i was fighting with them how you can kick kick us out because we drank too much it's all inclusive resort <laughs> it doesn't make sense they're like no we can kick you out and we, we got kicked out uh, next day i was smoking marijuana i started smoking this chemical marijuana yeah which i'm pretty sure it's not marijuana it's something different because in couple of drags you are completely numb you don't see anything happening and all my friends there they were started giving me some reflection or indication like man this is this stuff is not really easy it's like very dangerous so what are you doing you should be careful they were not doing mm. that i used to do this and drink and i'm completely numbed i don't i don't feel anything around me i was doing that all day in panama we were in swimming pool 12 best friend of mine having best time of our life and something happened there i felt so lonely mm with even with company of all my friends i felt lonely i felt completely numb my family is in houston and i started realizing i i'm not with them on this big milestone i'm with these guys but nobody is really in their senses they're all completely drunk and couple of guys are throwing up couple of guys are blacked out and one guy told me like nobody really cares it's your birthday dude <laughs> look at them we came here to party so we nobody cares and i was like shit i mean i mean that was big big blow to my ego i'm sure I was like man I'm this party thrower I'm I'm like boss of all these 12 people and nobody really cares it's my birthday and then I came back and it was just like day after day guilt shame and even if I'm drinking I'm not get feeling that buzz if I smoke my electronic uh, marijuana I will feel it for maybe 2 minutes and then it's gone mm so it just stopped working so was your what was it that your conscience was finally catching up with you yeah that was the incident where i thought man everything is just fake here these people don't really care about me and people who really care about me i don't want to be with them so how do i deal with this life now i don't want to spend time with my kids or wife because they are not fun they're just boring and then these guys are fun but they they don't really care about me I guess May June was my last drunk. I was drinking every day. I had some uh, small procedure done. Yeah. Uh, and the doctor said I'm going to give you painkillers, but don't mix with alcohol. You don't drink, right? right. I said no, no, I don't drink. He's <laughs> <laughs> like if you mix that can interfere with your heart and heart beats. So it's not a good idea. I said yeah, sure. Then I stepped out of uh, the place and I was like, shit, I cannot drink. So 
first day I didn't take the painkiller and I drank. Uh-huh. Like shit. And then I had a lot of pain. Next day, I said, you know what? I'm going to take painkiller. I'm going to try not to drink for one day. Mm. I've been drinking for 25 years. First day I didn't drink, I got so pissed off, angry. All these withdrawal symptoms, I'm shaking. I'm sure I fought with my wife and I threw a lot of fit. I did that for one more day. And after two days, I realized, man, why cannot stay sober for two days? You were having the DTs as well? Yeah, yeah. Withdrawal symptoms, like I was shaking and I couldn't sleep. Um, I was really agitated, angry all the time. So I called my friend. Um, he's my like, business friend. So I called him and I was talking with him about some kind of business. And um, I expressed this concern. I don't know why I talked about it. And he said, have you thought you might be alcoholic? I said, no, I don't think so. He's like, if you cannot stay sober for two days, maybe you're alcoholic. I said, maybe. So what? He's like, have you heard of AA? Alcoholics Anonymous? I said, no, I never heard of it. And I had never heard of it before. And he said, uh, you know, it's an amazing program where they connect sobriety with spirituality. Why don't you go and try them out? And I like the spirituality part. I didn't like the sobriety. Right. <laughs> I, like, nah, I, I don't really want to be sober, but I want to learn what's... I mean, I was faking to be spiritual because I was smoking marijuana, yeah, right? So yeah. I was faking to be meditating and I was doing all that yoga. And, uh, but I, I like that spirituality part. So, and it was July 2020. COVID had just started. People are wearing masks. And um, 6.30 p.m. was first meeting I went. And um, I picked up my desire chip. That was in person at that point? In person, yeah. 6.30 p.m. meeting. I was wearing masks, so I was not worried about anybody recognizing uh-huh. me. Obviously, I was not that popular. Nobody <laughs> knew me anyway, but I had this, oh, yeah, people may know me. Oh, you are here. Nobody knew me. Did you raise your hand and say you were an al- alcoholic at the beginning? I didn't know. Did you identify when they said, is this anybody's first meeting? Yeah. You did? I did. Okay, and they asked for a desire chip. They told me, if you want desire chip, I took the desire chip. I did not identify with any of them because I was still in my ego. I didn't know, look at similarities, not the differences. I was just looking at differences. I was like, no, not like you, not like you. You got in jail, I never got into jail. You got hospitalized, I never got in. And I have money, you don't have money. I did not identify with anything. Mm-hmm. I did not believe in program. But I said, you know what, the spirituality part I like, so I'm gonna keep going and see. I picked up a sponsor. And uh, my sponsor had like 30 plus years of sobriety, very military style of person. He's mm-hmm. like, he probably realized I'm just fooling around and I'm not serious. So he asked me, are you see, I mean, do you, do you have desire to quit alcohol? I said, yeah. Um, are you willing to do anything to achieve that? I said, yeah. He said, okay, every Tuesday, 12 o'clock, come to my home. I'm in Sugarland too. We'll start steps. Hmm. First day he said, okay, do you pray? I said, no, I don't pray. Why? Because nobody told me to pray. He said, do you think you are a God? Mm, <laughs> I was thinking, you know. <laughs> I was like, you are not. He told me, you are not God. <laughs> if you think you are God, then it's a problem. Very perceptive of him. Huh? <laughs> yeah, yeah. He was very smart. So he told me, okay, I will teach you how to pray. Hmm. Because I didn't know how to pray. Hmm. So he told me, okay, do you know any prayer? I said, no, I don't know any prayer. 
hello okay why don't you start with serenity prayer you get on your knees say the serenity prayer in the morning say it in the night that's all you are going to do i said okay i can do that and then we started going through the steps i always thought this guy wants something from me this guy wants my money or my car or something because i was like that if i am talking with you i want something from you otherwise i will not waste any of my time talking with you and of course you were the guy who would pay other people to do the work for you <laughs> so maybe there was the opportunity to pay him to stay sober for you yeah exactly <laughs> or do do all my steps for me <laughs> and i was getting surprised every tuesday as i was going to his house like he's not talking about money hmm. he's not talking i also thought he's going to convert me into like christian or something and he's going to talk about jesus no so i was surprised every time and i started now feeling little bit good about the program i was like why this man is spending all his time like 2 3 hours a time listening to my crap and why is so compassionate well this was during covid mm-hmm. was this during the zoom meetings where live meetings were not going on Or yeah but for some reason at 6:30 p.m. meetings okay all right so the club that you and i go to mm-hmm. had the had the meetings so you were still able to go. were you going every day i was trying most of the days because that was my drinking time and my sponsor said if you go to meeting you will not feel like drinking okay so you were going to regular meetings you had a sponsor you were starting to work the steps mm-hmm. and he told me do 90 days 90 meetings in 90 days I had a lot of withdrawal symptoms I couldn't sleep I was shaking I was irritated I was angry all the time but I thought you know what I'm going to do it and see what's going on I mean even though I did not believe it in the program mm-hmm. I thought I'm going to do it because some guy one day shared said uh, even if you don't believe 2 plus 2 is 4 it's still truth <laughs> yeah, right. so even if you don't believe 12 steps are going to work for you you still do it and it will work for you because yeah it eventually it will work and in 3 months i got done with my steps half assed i didn't yeah, really sure. do the whole thing but my craving was lifted and that was miracle for me for me my wife i mean she used to cry every day you're not drinking i'm like no i'm not drinking i don't feel like drinking and she used to cry and she used to tears of gratitude yeah thank god every day and hmm. give me pat on the back and i started liking that i was like man <laughs> because i i was hooked on to this electronic marijuana so much. i used to do it every 15 minutes i felt numb and now i don't i i was in a such a bad withdrawal symptoms i had i was shaking i couldn't sleep i was angry in 3 months it's all gone i was sleeping like baby i was relaxed and then i thought man this is some kind of miracle because i couldn't do it by myself and i was so thankful to my sponsor and all that and he didn't seem to be shocked he's like yeah good at 3 months you've gotten through the cravings you don't crave the electronics cigarettes or the uh the booze anymore mm-hmm. you've worked through your steps maybe not as thoroughly as later on you realized that you needed to you had a sponsor who was guiding you on a on an ongoing basis every tuesday you were getting together uh and you were starting to get the spiritual part of the program and that's 3 months in mm-hmm. that's amazing that's amazing and yeah at that point i started realizing 
I did my inventory and uh, I started realizing what part I have been playing in my life. Mm. Um, so st- beginning with, so I had my resentment list of, I had 45 people on my list. Pretty much everybody I knew <laughs> close to me was on my list. All those 12 people who yeah. went with me, my party people, my family, my bosses, uh, this oil and gas company who fired me. But really, this program not only helped me with being sober, but just to understand what I have done in life. What is my part? I'm not victim anymore. I'm, I can do bad stuff to other people too. I'm capable of that. Yeah. And um, so blaming my father mm-hmm. was the game I was playing. But what was my part in that? And he has done. So my sponsor really had to teach me how life is, you know, he's, he told me about each and every person, hey, your father or your mother, they did best of their ability to raise you with the resources they had. If he's alcoholic, he's a sick person. He's not a bad person. Your mom is supporting him, but she doesn't know anything better. Same as your wife is supporting you. And um, so he went through each and every incident and it made sense. It made sense. I was like, man, maybe I was ready because of this uh, realization I had in Panama. That, yeah, yeah. You know, what I've been doing and everything made sense to me. And that time I started believing in the program. And I feel like that's where my progress started. Three months you were revisited by the reality of karma in your life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then I started going to the meetings on my own. Mm-hmm. I didn't have any point to prove anybody. I didn't want any uh, pat on the back or uh, f- like all my 12 friends, they started making fun of me. They started making um, judgments like, oh, he must have had liver cancer. Oh, my, he might got caught with his uh, wife or something. So, And that disturbed me. But that really showed me who is my true friend and who was just drinking buddy. To my shock, they were all drinking buddies. <laughs> and just because of the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous, I was able to interact with people other than my drinking uh, group. because I didn't have any other friends. So I just became lonely. And because of the fellowship, I started making sober friends and um, I started sponsoring people. I had a couple of sponsees. And then I started realizing, you know what, even though initially I didn't identify with a lot of people because I've never been to jail, but I was very close. Uh, Just one step. I was drinking and driving every day. I always took to go drink with me. I was very close of going to hospital. I was hospitalized, but I forgot that. You know, I was hospitalized back in India. Um, My wife told me she thought of divorcing me a thousand times. But she was not, she was afraid what she's going to do, what about kids. Right. She was worried and afraid. But now, now she tells me all huh. the time. She's like, man, you are such a bad husband. You were just full of crap. I wanted to leave you. And because I'm part of, I'm, I'm doing my amends now, right? So I'm, I listen to her because I've done so much uh, bad shit to her. So I was very close to getting divorced. I was, uh, I lost my job many times. Mm-hmm. So what else? I was waiting for. So my sponsor made helped me realize, you know, I was very close. So yeah. he's like, if you don't believe that you you will eventually taste all this, 
go out and um, start drinking and using your electronic marijuana, we'll be here. I was afraid to go out. I was like, man, I don't want to go because I don't know if I will come back or not. So for me, my bottom was really that uh, loneliness I felt even in the group of 12 people. I carried that resentment for a long, long time. But you were able to process it once you got to the fourth and fifth step. Yeah. I'm assuming your eighth and ninth step were pretty loaded up as well. Yeah, pretty loaded up. Yeah, I, I, I was still manipulative in those uh, amends. <laughs> so, what funny amends was like, one, I, so I stole from this uh, Muslim guy who owned a jewelry store. I used to work for him. Mm-hmm. So I used to steal $20, $30 every day so that I can pay for my drinking. So one of the amends was him calling him. And uh, so I called him during the month of Ramadan where they cannot really get angry. <laughs> They're supposed to forgive people. I was like, oh, yeah, sure. This is the best time. Let's call him. Uh-huh. He cannot be really angry. <laughs> I called him and he started crying. I probably had stolen like $600 from him. So yeah. I told him, man, this is what I have done. I'm doing this program and I want to... What can I do yeah. to make those amends? Can I pay it back to you? Right. He started crying. He's like, because you you have been truthful to me, I want to tell you I'm going through so many difficult things in my life. I'm getting divorced. I'm, has issues. I have issues with my kids. Mm. And all I need is you pray for me. I don't need money back. I don't need anything. But because I was so open and honest with him, he was open and honest with me. He told his problems, and I was able to listen. I was able to, I prayed for him. Mm-hmm. I, I talked with him a couple of times later that, and we couldn't really connect. Mm-hmm. He, he got busy and all that, but he forgave me. He mm-hmm. didn't really ask for money, and it was a beautiful experience. I was, I was afraid he's going to call cops, he's going to turn me into some. No, he didn't do any of that. You were ready to accept that if it happened, weren't yeah. you? Yeah. Yeah, I was ready. And if you said, write me a check for 600 you were ready for that? I was ready. That's a beautiful story. So during the time that you've been sober, the three and a half years now, have there been any uh, occasions where you rethought your decision to get or stay sober? Like it's a bad decision or I want to go back or something? Yeah. No, yeah. no, no. I was so, because of the program, even if thought came to my mind many times, mm-hmm. I need to go back and drink. I need to go party with these 12 guys. I was coming to meetings every day and I was hearing stories of relapse. And I, it just shook me every time when I heard like someone would come, hey, I had 10 years of sobriety. And then I just thought one beer is not going to do anything. And I got into this um, cycle of blackouts and all that. So, yeah, that, that thought came to my mind. But... I was able to play that tape forward because I was coming to meeting, because I was talking with my sponsor, hey, I feel like maybe not drinking beer or what if I go to strip club? What's wrong with that? He's like, is it a right thing to do if you are married? Your wife is going to accept that? Talk with her. If she says yes, go. <laughs> but then you have to let her go to like main strip club or whatever she wants to do. Right. No, I don't really want to do that. I said, okay, then eventually that's a behavior you are going to feel guilt and then you're going to get drunk like if you go to barber shop every day you will get a haircut so why you want to do so i feel lucky that i was asking questions i was talking with people so i never thought 
I should go and get drunk. That's such a positive framework for your early sobriety. You were gaining the intuition of knowing what to do when those kind of thoughts came up. And you weren't that far away from your next meeting or your next contact with a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous. You, you didn't go too far down the road before you realized you had to rethink things. So that, to me, is the best demonstration I know of a program that's being worked well. And yours sounds like that kind of program. I see you in meetings, and I hear you share, and it sounds sincere. Your candor is very important, I think, to a lot of people. I'm concerned about and want to ask you about the 12 people. It sounds like 12 disciples or something. How, how difficult that's been. Or, you know, because oh, they man. say we have to change playmates. All of my friends were replaced by AA people. What's your experience been like? It's, that's a good question, and it's really, really hard for me mm-hmm. because uh, that was my life. Yeah. I mean, that, those were my friends. That was for a long time, like 20 years. And their wives are friends with my wife. Their kids are friends with my kids. When I started in my new sobriety, they would still invite me for kids' birthday party or anniversary. Agenda is same. All the girls are busy doing girly stuff. All the kids are playing together. All the dads are sitting in the backyard and getting hammered. And I'm sober, so I don't know what to do. And they are like forcing me or they are asking me all the time. And so I cannot choose not to go because our families are connected. Right. At the same time, when I go, it's just emotionally draining because they're talking about alcohol, their adventures in strip club, mm. and I just could not take it. It's still hard for me. Yeah. A month back, I shared about it, and then my sponsor told me, hmm, why don't you st- start praying for them? I said, I mean, those assholes, I, I shouldn't <laughs> pray for them. They should pray for me. Yeah, right. Like, no, but it bothers you. Yeah. So you should... Start pr- so I'm praying for 12 people every morning. <laughs> I, I get tired of saying their names in my prayer. And uh, uh, so I asked him, like, hey, I asked my sponsor how long I should pray for them. Like, pray in the morning, pray in the night until you forget to just pray one day. That means you are, uh, you are just letting them go from your mind. Because they cannot stop what they are doing. It's their life. It's bothering you, so it's your problem. And I started praying about a month back. And believe it or not, other than only two, three people, it just, I'm becoming more neutral about this. But it's hard. I mean, that letting go that lifestyle, because they're still meeting, they're still going out, they're still telling me once in a while, hey, this is what happened, we had fun, this, that. I don't want to be part of it, but I still feel like I'm missing something. It's that euphoric recall. It's the remembering only the good stuff that happened to us while we were drinking and doing lascivious behavior. Mm -hmm. By this point, do you feel like you've made sufficient friends within AA to start to replace people who are dangerous to your sobriety? Absolutely. I made many friends. Um, In fact, in today's men's meeting, uh, there were a lot of people I made friends with. I like to play pickleball. Twelve people, we go, we play pickleball once a month. Nice places like Houston Country Club, where he works on. And I'm training with a guy who is sober, so I meet him every other day. That's cool. So I made, yeah, I made a lot of good friends. The guy who referred me to Alcoholics Anonymous, he's my business associate. So I made a lot of friends. I don't have any sober Indian friends. That's interesting. 
Yeah, because um, all my Indian friends who I met, they they drank like me. Yeah. They drank at least, I have to drink at least four or five drinks. Otherwise, it's not a party. So all my, my friends are like that. So I don't have any sober Indian friends. Um, I never made any sober Indian friends. They're, it's not like all Indians drink. But I was like, yeah, you're not good enough for me because you don't drink. So, I mean, now out of those 12 people, I really feel... Only two of them are really good friends of mine. Uh, we, we meet for lunch. We meet for playing pickleball. Uh, go, we go out for a run. So we meet for non-alcoholic activities. Rest of the people have no interest in me. I have no interest in them. When you're in a fit spiritual condition, you should be able to go anywhere and feel protected. So it sounds to me like maybe you've you've accomplished that with these people. Just the fact that 10 of them have kind of kind of gone to the wayside while you've still remained active with a couple of them. I mean, that's, man, that's amazing. Most yeah. people can't do that. I really admire that. And I honor your program. It sounds like uh, everything you've told me today really paints a really neat picture. Uh, I never would be able to put into context that which I am now able to do having talked to you. And this has just, I think, been a marvelous way for you and I to get to know each other. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, and I say this all the time to people, I love you and I respect you and I honor your sobriety and I hope that, you're, that you will continue to do the things that you need to do in your life to be of service to other alcoholics. And what I was thinking when you were mentioning the, some of those guys was you never know when you will have been the only ver version of the big book that they've ever see. you know. I've, I've heard remarkable stories of people remaining friends with their and five years later, the friend is calling them up saying, you know, I think I have a problem. And then sooner or later, they come in. Th those are beautiful stories. My guess is you're going to have some of those stories along the way. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, one guy already reached out to me. He's in Dallas. And um, unfortunately, he couldn't stay sober. He said, I told him, go do 90 meetings yeah, in 90 sure. days. Yeah. He did 90 meetings. And then he said, see, I can stop. And he started drinking. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> But he always tells me on the phone, like, hey, man, it's too much. I cannot stop. What should I do? He stays sober for a week, and then he goes out. But at least you're right. I mean, One day he'll have an epiphany. One day he'll have a moment of clarity. And you may be the first phone call that he makes or, the you know, the, get in touch with you first. And you'll be able to be of an amazing degree of service because you've lived good program. Uh, kind of representing the best that AA has to offer to the people who are still out there suffering. Sachin, thank you so much for doing this. This has been a, just a marvelous opportunity for us to get to know each other. No, it was, it was pretty easy. I think it all credit goes to you. You're a really good interviewer. And again, I'm glad you gave me this opportunity. Thank you for the great service that you do. Appreciate it. Thank you. Well, my friends, that's it for today's episode of AA Recovery Interviews. I want to thank my guest, Sachin B., for sharing his story. And thank you for tuning in. Of course, you can listen to all my interviews in this podcast series by following it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Pandora, Amazon, and other podcast providers. Or visit our website, aarecoveryinterviews.com, where you can listen to every episode. And if you want to contact me directly with any comments or suggestions, simply email howard at aarecoveryinterviews.com. 
By the way, this podcast strictly adheres to AA's 12 traditions and all general service office guidelines for safeguarding anonymity online. I pay all production costs, and no one receives financial gain from the show. AA Recovery Interviews and my guests do not speak for or represent AA at large. This podcast is simply my way of giving back to AA, that which has been so freely given to me. The next episode of AA Recovery Interviews is on the way, so keep coming back. It'll be here soon. 